The songs that we've sung together have been so stirring. They've been so encouraging and uplifting. Messages have been wonderful, such as the blessed hour of prayer. The features about that last one we just sung in which we were able to think about praising God the way that we just did it. It's so good to come together on this Lord's Day morning. I hope each of us have been able to arrive in a place of both body and spirit in which we can offer to God the heartfelt worship that is in our being. And as we do that today, to think somewhat about another controversial topic. This is our third one of the year. We did one in January and then in February. And so the second Sunday in March has brought us to the topic that you see before you this morning. As has been the case in each of these so far, I believe you'd agree with me that our discussion has surrounded the following sets of ideas. It's not our goal to appreciate controversy just because men call it so. We want the Word of God to do the talking and the Word of God to do the express presentation. And many times that takes away all the controversy. You and I today are going to study about music and worship. Now, this is not something that's foreign to us or unfamiliar to us. We've no doubt often considered it, heard lessons relating to it. But today, why don't we think about that from a new perspective? Appreciate some of the characteristic features of the text and also add into that some understandings that go with our common observation. Wouldn't it be fair to say that music and worship has been a part of that which we find reading in the Bible for many, many millennia. Even the Old Testament, they would in fact employ music. What you and I recognize the question of the moment today is, what about mechanical instruments of music? What kind of music does God want? A mechanical instrument. As you and I give some thought to that topic and that discussion today, you and I will certainly appreciate several things not the least of which will be some of the matters at the bottom of that opening slide. You may have neighbors or acquaintances or friends, and as you inform them, or at least as they ask and you reply that you're a member of the body of Christ, the church of Christ, sometimes one of the first comments, well, you're among those people who don't believe in music. Well, that may afford an opportunity to discuss or at least to offer some thinking as to that whole situation and that whole scenario. Why don't we then devote our attention today to reflecting upon issues connected to that. And the first one's going to be this one. May I offer you this thought? We may on occasion have the perspective that we may well be the only ones that do not approve of the usage of, of a mechanical instrument of music and worship. I do hope, though, that after we finish this slide, you'll recognize we by no means are the only one. First of all, could I invite us to begin the slide, though? In some ways, the whole lesson like this, truth is not determined by majority vote. Truth, in terms of this subject or any other, is not determined by a number who are in agreement with us. And so the first thing I'd say is, even if we were the only one, if that's right then that settles it. We don't need any large number in order for something to in fact be reckoned as right. But isn't it fascinating in Exodus 23, 2, when Moses warned the children of Israel, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. There are many instances when the multitude, you see, is choosing to do that which is not the right thing, and we surely wouldn't want to be numbered 
amongst the multitude in a case like that. That second statement on the slide then reads like this. Practically all religious groups rejected the use of mechanical instruments of music as late as the 17th and the 18th centuries. And in many ways would like to expressly emphasize that again. Many, in fact, virtually all of those religious organizations that you can now think of, which do not only use mechanical instruments, but, but also overwhelmingly do so, they didn't begin that way. The Methodist Church, the Baptist Church, the Presbyterian Church, none of them used mechanical instruments of music in the early days of their existence. Obviously, their perspective has changed. Their viewpoint is not as it was at that time. In order to highlight that, I thought I'd share with you some quotations from their people. So these aren't things that I've made up or that some Church of Christ person has written. But look at these. May I ask you to notice this first quotation? The very person who founded the Methodist Church, John Wesley, he made this comment. I have no objection to instruments of music in our worship, provided they are neither seen nor heard. How about that? When the Methodist Church thus began, back again in the early 1700s, it was the understanding that the employment of a mechanical instrument of music was not only not approved, it was not even a consideration. How about the second quotation? This one comes from a person you're probably familiar with. Have you ever heard of Adam Clark? The writer of a rather famous set of commentaries. He was a Methodist, but this is what he said. I am an old man, and I, am, I here declare that I never knew them, and the word them refers to mechanical instruments of music, to be productive of any good in the worship of God, and have reason to believe that they are productive of much evil. Instrumental music in the house of God I abominate and abhor. A Methodist wrote that. Look at the third one. For years the Baptists fought the introduction of instrumental music in the worship, in, into the churches, and that's by none other than William Posey, one of the most notable founding forces, if you please, in the character of, of the church you and I would call today the Baptist Church. The last quote on that slide is from none other than Charles Spurgeon. You may be familiar with the name. He was the, quote, pastor of a Baptist church in Atlanta. Over 20,000 people on a weekly basis would worship under his teaching. You and I would disagree with Mr. Spurgeon on many things, but this is what he said about instrumental music. I would as soon pray to God with machinery as I had to sing to God with machinery. He used 1 Corinthians 14, 15 very strongly when it says, I will pray with the Spirit, I'll pray with the understanding. I'll sing with the Spirit, and I'll sing with the understanding. He said if we're going to use machinery, and by that he meant mechanical instruments of music, we just as well pray to God with machinery. I think we can see how he felt about this. Those quotations could be extended many, many times over. But the thought still is the case before us that as far as the employment of mechanical instruments, those organizations began without them. Obviously, again, their perspective has changed. Let's go back to that previous slide. 
And let's again finish it like this. There are many particular organizations, not just singular individuals, but the primitive Baptists to this day. Sometimes you'll see Baptists will have on their sign primitive Baptists. They will have no mechanical instruments of music in their worship. Not only primitive Baptists, Reformed Presbyterians will not use them. And not only that, Greek Orthodox people to this day do not use them. May I point out, we aren't the only ones. Those who are lovingly consistent with what the appreciation of the assertion of the Word of God is will not employ them. As you and I close that slide, may we then turn our attention to again the appreciation in the mind of many to the employment of these mechanical instruments. What changed in their thinking that suddenly has brought these into place in so many places? As we go forward past those quotations, May I choose to entitle this particular slide, Reasons for Refusing. The Church of Christ, as you and I know, does not choose, does not use mechanical instruments of music in our worship. And on occasion, the reason may well be asked, well, why don't you? Is it because you can't afford them? Is it because you don't have room in your building for them? Is it because you just happen to not prefer music like that? What's the reason? May I strongly offer the reason is none of them. If we wanted them, we'd make room. If we felt as if it was the proper thing, we would find a place for them. It's not that we just happen not to like that kind of music. May I invite us to think of it this way, the singular reason is solely based upon the authority of the Word of God. We have no authority for them. We have no approval from God for them. We have nothing on the part of a declaration from God that would lead us to believe that He has given any authority for the usage, for the condoning, for the approval of mechanical instruments of music and worship. I would say in Acts 4 verse 7, even in those early days of the church, you might recall that the great question was asked, by what authority have you done this? We can't just do things because we prefer it. We need some authority from God that that's the way it's supposed to be. That that's what He will in fact give His veto or rather His approval to. Not only that. In Colossians 3 verse 17, that passage read in our hearing just a moment ago. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. If it's such that then that we are under the understanding that in the name of the Lord Jesus, that directly carries the consideration of authority. And therefore, you and I recognize if we're going to play a guitar or a drum, or if we otherwise are going to speak about the nature of an organ or otherwise, we need God to grant us the absolute approval of doing such a thing. Because after all, He did not seemingly like it in Amos 5, verse 23. He said, you play the vial, I want it stopped. If we are now to offer something like that to Him now, should we not want Him to overtly tell us that that's what He wants? You may notice that near the bottom of that slide, 
you and I have eight different authors in the New Testament. That is to say, inspired gentlemen who penned the nature of those 27 New Testament books. Those eight authors are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Peter, James, Jude, as well as, as, as the other John. But one more time, as you think about all of them, aren't we reminded not a one of them has given approval to the characteristic usage of mechanical instruments of music in worship? As you close that slide with me, we do note this. There is clear and abundant approval for singing. That text read today in Colossians 3 verse 16, that text that might be mentioned in Ephesians 5 19, that statement of Hebrews 2 verse 12, just to name three. And in each one of them, you and I find the statement of God as it makes reference to music. And in each case, it's singing. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. What a lovely passage. That is the text of Hebrews 2 verse 12. I would submit as we close that slide, to my knowledge there's not a person living either now or in the past who has ever argued with the approval of singing. What we're talking about is what then about this playing of a mechanical instrument? What about that? There are some objections that are often offered and some reasons that are sometimes discussed in light of it. Before we begin to look at them, I'm going to mention one final thought. And it is one that is certainly worthy of some consideration. Do you recall a moment ago I mentioned in none of those particular organizations was there the usage of mechanical instruments, at least at the outset, but then something changed. At the top of that slide, I would ask you to notice that the usage of these mechanical instruments became not only popular, but exceedingly so in many places in the 1800s. As you begin to look then at the period of time from around 1820 up until around 1875, you find a span of some few decades wherein the usage of them became more and more prominent. As far as the Church of Christ, I'd be quick to say this. There are some churches that label themselves Churches of Christ that do employ mechanical instruments of music. As far as I know, and it would seem that history will back me up. It was in the little town of Midway, Kentucky in 1859 when a gentleman named L.L. L. Pinkerton, in fact, he even bragged about it. Later he would write, As far as I know, I was the first one to introduce the playing of mechanical instrument of music. It was in the little church there in Midway, Kentucky. I would think it rather intriguing that to this day, if you visit Midway, Kentucky, there's a college there named Midway College, and in their library, there's a little display case, and they've got a melodeon sitting in that display case. And a tour guide will, in fact, somewhat say, this is the first instrument that was ever played in the so-called Christian church as it relates to the worship of God. And almost say it with a bit of proud prideness. I would say that there are some who would quickly point out, look at how little it is. A melodeon is not a very big instrument. Someone interesting to note in that light that that little situation was not the first. As far as I can tell, 10 years later in 1869 in St. Louis, Missouri, 
there was the introduction, the usage of a mechanical instrument of music in their worship. If you would, please take a look at the dates I've asked you to note next. So if we were to begin the count at 1859, by 1906, 1906, think about how short amount of time that is really. 41 plus 6, 47 years total. In that light, you may wonder what was so significant about 1906. Here's what was significant. In the decade of the 1880s and the 1890s, the usage of mechanical instruments in worship became so prominent and so accepted that there came to be a recognized distinction. Some brethren used them and others didn't. By 1906, it was a full-fledged division. The groups were then reckoned as separate in the cataloging of the religious organizations by 1906. You may wonder what the different names are. The Church of Christ held to those that did not use those mechanical instruments. The name, by and large, adopted by those that did was the Christian Church. And to this day, that tends to still be a rather notable distinction between the two groups. Not to say it's the only one, but certainly a very notable one. A great deal of work and sternness with respect to the teaching of the Bible took place in those decades, attempting to encourage brethren to remain loyal to the declaration of the Bible. Men like David Lipscomb, N.B. Hardiman, A.G. Freed, and so many others, as they wrote in various publications, striving to encourage brethren to not be swayed by the declarations and the teaching of men, but to allow the Word of God to state concerning these matters. Shortly after 1906, there was a movement that began. And may I say, in our day today, it reached a bit of a crescendo around 15 years ago. You may recall there were those who said, Look, we need to reunify with the Christian church. Churches of Christ need to go back and be with them. Excuse me. We weren't the ones that were wrong in this. They were. They were not going to change anything. We were just supposed to accept these instruments, but that's the very thing that caused the division in the first place. Should it not be noted in that light that that division never seemingly gained a lot of ground? I'm sorry, the reunification push never seemingly gained a lot of ground. But it does at least ask us to consider the following. Those objections that I mentioned earlier, objections wherein there are some who might again offer reasons why that it might be okay in their mind to use a mechanical instrument of music in worship. One of the first statements you on occasion may hear is this one. They used them in the Old Testament. Didn't David use them? Didn't various other Old Testament persons make use of them? Look at some of these comments. First of all, just because something was authorized or even used in the Old Testament does not mean that it's authorized or to be used today. In fact, isn't the issue about Moses and the rock at least an example of a situation where something might be authorized or even done at one time, but then it may not be done sometime later? In Exodus 17, God commanded Moses to smite a rock and water would come out of it, and He did. 
In Numbers chapter 20, Moses struck a rock, water come out of it, but God did not approve that one. Interesting, isn't it? What God approved on one occasion, under a certain circumstance, He did not approve later. Not only that, what about animal sacrifices? They were offered in the Old Testament without a doubt. Should we do that today? The same kind of reasoning, thus, you might want to apply to music, surely doesn't apply broadly to everything else. You and I know overwhelmingly that there is no animal sacrifice to be offered today. Hebrews chapter 10 is a masterful dissertation about how that would even be evil today. And so, even though mechanical instruments may well have been used in the Old Testament, we surely would not want to use that as any authorization for today. Beyond that, how do we even rest assured that God approved of them then? Because He certainly didn't in Amos chapter 5, and He certainly didn't in Amos chapter 6, and He certainly didn't in Isaiah chapter 1. Are we thus to conclude that perhaps those were David's idea even then? That they were the idea of the people even then? Certainly something to consider, isn't it? What about the second statement you might hear someone make? Have you ever heard someone say, when you perhaps express, well, we don't use mechanical instruments in our worship, and they say, well, they do in heaven. So why don't you use them? Well, what does the Bible say? Are they used in heaven? What's the circumstances that might be said concerning this? The text that is most often utilized is Revelation 14.2. May I ask you to read that as, or listen as I read Revelation chapter 14, verse number 2. And again, we're going to ask, what about the usage of mechanical instruments in heaven? And I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder, and I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. Now, there are many things about that that could well occupy our attention for much of the rest of our lesson this morning. But at the bottom of that slide, I would at least ask you to note this with me. There are so many of the presentations made in the book of Revelation, which themselves are governed underneath the presentation theme of chapter 1, verse 1. That is to say, things are signified. They are symbolically presented as truth of the major issue of principle that rests beneath it. Well, that being said, in a passage like this one, I find it extremely odd that we might, at least some, will take that verse, verse number 2, especially the latter statement in it, as literal, and two verses later, it's clear that it is symbolic. Look at what's presented two verses later, verse 4. There's a description of virgins as the only ones going to heaven. Do we really take that literally? That anyone who's ever had sexual favors of that way surely must be lost, if I'm going to take that literally. Is that what that means? I believe you'd quickly notice then that some are quick to pick and choose what verses they might want to utilize as the basis for something. Could I offer you this thought? The earlier part of verse number 2 is it talks about the things that John heard and what they were like. Many things are presented metaphorically. Note the word as. Well, might we say that those were thus were clear comparisons it's not that that was to be taken literally. 
Well, as far as that latter part of the verse, could you and I not make this statement? Things in the heavenly realm are very different than what takes place here on earth. We have no doubt about that. I would offer you marriage as one of them. We know angels don't marry, but yet people on earth do. And yet that heavenly realm is a great one. So you're telling me then that you're thinking that just because you seemingly think that harps are played in heaven, you must do it here? Kind of odd. Kind of strange. Again, would we each keep in mind that heavenly realm is rather distinct? What about a third observation? Some are quick to say, but the Bible doesn't tell me not to use them. Have you ever heard that one? There's no verse that says, Thou shalt not play a piano in worship. There's no verse that says, Thou shalt not play an organ. It's a bit difficult to consider that one with any degree of seriousness. I've tried to develop it rather easily with you like this. You and I know that there's no realm I know of of any knowledge that's approached this way. Suppose you went to the doctor, the doctor wrote you a prescription, and you go to the druggist and he hauls out a wheelbarrow full of medicine for you. And you say, I, what's all this medicine for? And the druggist says, the doctor didn't tell me not to give it to you. That's absolute nonsense. Nothing in the world works that way. You take your car to the local repair shop because there's an issue with its muffler. And you come back at the end of the day, and the gentleman has replaced the muffler, the battery, the starter, the points, the entirety of the fan belt, and gives you a bill for $1,500. And he says, well, you didn't tell me not to do those other things. You see, nothing in life that I know of works this way. In fact, could you imagine for a moment how large the Bible would have to be? If God specifically said everything that was not to be done, there's no way that you and I could ever hold it, move it. The entirety of, in fact, the whole state of Tennessee couldn't hold it because it would have to have in it everything for every civilization and every generation until the end of time that's not to be done. Isn't it true that you and I know that the way God and our own appreciation works is we expect people to tell us what they do want, what is needful. And that's the way God did it. And so there's a book no bigger than this one that has in it what is to be done. God didn't have to tell me what not to do. All He had to tell me was what to do. And so on that slide, isn't that exactly what the theme of Colossians 3.17 is? Whatever you do in word or deed... Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. So far today, as we've looked at some thoughts concerning music, may at least offer that the principles concerning this easily extend to so many other matters and considerations touching service to God. I realize the topic of music has been a controversial one. But when the text says things like this, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, Ephesians 5, 19. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Colossians 3.16 May I offer that at least in that latter one, there's an amazing amount of detail presented. Whatever kind of music is under discussion is music which admonishes and teaches. Two things that no mechanical instrument can ever do. Because an instrument is lifeless. All it can do is to produce sounds, and those sounds by themselves can't teach, warn, admonish, exhort, or anything else. But the human voice can by words which it can put together, by sentences and meaning and interpretation which it can put together. And so the singing that you and I engage in in many ways can be argued as an incredibly powerful teaching tool in the worship of the church. We genuinely teach each other. The words of these songs, as we've mouthed them and as we voice them, we are warning each other and we are admonishing one another and we are setting forward a direct teaching ministry to one another. Not to say the least, we are directing our worship to God this way. Hebrews 13, 15 will say, The fruit of our lips sending forth praise unto God. That's what the Hebrew writer wrote. So we don't use instruments just because we don't like them. Quite frankly, sometimes those who are skilled at playing an instrument, it does sound impressive. But we don't use them because God has not authorized them. It's not that we just prefer not to. It's not that we don't have room it's not that we can't afford the instruments. None of that is the case. But because God has not authorized them. Let's close our lesson like this. We've looked today at some of the features concerning the music of our worship. As we've looked at the verses before us and some of the thoughts that we've considered, doesn't it remind us about how that worship by its very nature is significant? We assemble for the purpose of worship, and we recognize that what takes place here is important. It does matter. I realize that some perhaps think it doesn't, but that is a great fault. The places that Paul went, the places that the other New Testament writers attended, there was a recognized consistency that what Paul had taught in one place is what he had taught in others. It is with that said that we come to this point in our lesson. I hope that we're better equipped, maybe to share with others the approach that the Word of God does testify concerning the music of worship. And hopefully we can help some of them appreciate and realize that the reason for our choice has nothing to do with sometimes what they assert that it does. Today, perhaps having nothing to do with a subject like this, Maybe there's something in your life that you realize is not right with God. That choices you've made or approaches or pursuits that you've made, you do realize the Lord loves you. I hope you can almost visualize the cross at this point. Blood dripping from His face as it was running down their own and oozing forth from His body. That blood He shed was for you and for me. We couldn't go to heaven without it. We can never be right without it. 
We can never have our name in the book of life without it. The agony, the excruciation, the difficulty connected to it, He did all of that for us. Surely the least we can do is offer our worship to Him the way that He has said He wants it. But again, if in other matters of life you are distant from the Lord, why not today come back rushing to His side? As a wayward child of God, He still loves you. Oh, He's disappointed. And He is very saddened by the choices you and I might make. But He still wants us so much to come back to His side. That church at Ephesus was told in Revelation 2.5 they had left their first love. That might be true for someone in this assembly. If we could help you today by way of encouragement, by way of setting up some Bible studies with you so that we can help reinsert the nature of the strength of faith, we'd be happy to do that. If you've never become a Christian, though, what better day than this one? To express belief in the Lord, repenting of your sins, confessing His marvelous name, and being baptized for the remission of your sins. We'd love to be of helpfulness and encouragement that way, and we'd love to do it. Brother Cale has chosen a song of encouragement today, and if we could be of assistance in any way, won't you kindly let us know while we stand and while we sing?